If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 13. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for quite a while. I have thoroughly enjoyed the study of the Gospel of Mark, and we only have a few weeks left to study through Mark. And as I always start the sermon by inviting you to turn where we're going to be, because I think that's going to help you get the most out of this this morning. So please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. And before I jump into that, let me remind you, you heard Juan say it this morning, uh, but our focus this year for our vision is Christ in you, Christ in others, and Christ in families. And a few weeks ago, I, I mentioned all of those points in a sermon, and I told you that we're challenging you to memorize Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. And what I have in my hand right here is a little refrigerator magnet. We had some magnets made for you, and it has Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 on the magnet. You'll find a stack of these uh, out there in the foyer on the welcome desk. There's a few different options for the different types of magnets that you could get. I encourage you to grab one per family, put it on your refrigerator as a constant reminder this year of this prayer that Paul offers in Ephesians 3, right? and this passage we want to encourage you to memorize. So grab a magnet. Will you remember that by the time this sermon is over with? Hopefully so. Maybe, Tony, remind them again before it's all over. But grab a magnet. And then the other thing is I just want to remind you to be praying and thinking about this question that we talked a lot about last year, who's your one? We really strongly believe that God is calling all of us to be disciple makers. And one of the ways that we did that last year was to choose one. Who's one person that God has placed in your life to begin a discipling relationship with? We're going to come back to that. I mentioned that a few weeks ago. We're coming back to that at the end of April, early May. So just be thinking and praying about who's your one. Spend some time in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Now, I say all of that, and we're going to jump into our subject this morning, which is Mark 13, which is probably the most confusing chapter in all of the Gospels. And then you could look at the parallel in Matthew 24, Luke 21. It's a difficult passage to understand. Uh, Tony texted me just a little bit ago, and he said, do you want me to cut a song because we're running a little bit later in the service? And I said, no, uh, do the normal songs, and I'll be aware of the time. So it kind of works in my favor. I'm going to go through some of this quickly, and if you don't like my presentation, well, uh, I'm doing it for the sake of time, okay? Mark chapter 13 is a difficult passage. If you've been looking at this creepy-looking slide for the last few minutes. Uh, And the title of this sermon is Wake Up. You may have noticed that from our scripture reading that Hunter read this morning from the end of Mark chapter 13. When I think of this word wake up, I first of all think, well, sleep is a good thing. A few weeks ago, my son needed a medical test that he had to do on a Friday morning. Uh, He's okay. Our prayers are answered. We're very blessed. But we didn't know that at the time. And they needed him to be asleep during this test. And the test was taking place early in the morning, so the requirement was that we wake him up at 3 a.m. and keep him awake until the test, Uh, which is like child abuse. It was awful. I hated doing it, but I had two options. I could either set my alarm and wake up and then wake him up, or I could just stay up all night and wake him up, stay up with him. And I thought, man, I've done this before. I used to be a youth minister. I would do lock-ins, things like that. I can do this. Stayed up till 3, I woke him up, we stayed up till 5, and I thought, I'm feeling pretty good. And then I hit a wall. 
And in that, the rest of that day, I was completely miserable. I felt physically sick. I was mentally slow. I was grouchy. You could ask Jessica. She will let you know how miserable I was to be around that day. Why? Because I didn't sleep. And when we don't sleep, something goes wrong with our body and with our mind. God created us in a way that we need to sleep. Some people say that sleep is like a spiritual discipline. Because when we sleep, it's a reminder that we're not in control. God is in control. And when we sleep, we can relinquish some of that control, right? We have to go unconscious for a certain part of the day. And that's okay because God is still working. So sleep is a good thing, but sleep could also be a bad thing, right? Sleep is a bad thing when it interferes with your life in a negative way. So if you ever slept too much, maybe you're a little bit groggy. Or maybe you've slept too late and you've been late for a meeting or for work or for school. Has anybody ever done that before? You know, when sleep, you oversleep and it interferes with your life in a negative way. People who have struggled with depression, sometimes uh, that's one of the temptations just to sleep excessively. Sleep can be a negative thing. Although God created our bodies physically to where we need sleep, it can be negative. It can interfere in our lives. We can sleep at the wrong times. Uh, For over a decade now, when I preach, occasionally I'll notice, it's not that often, but I'll notice some of you nodding off during the sermon. So if you ever notice me, raise my voice like this. I'm just doing it for those who are nodding off to watch them jolt their head back up. That's, That's why I do it. Don't sleep at the wrong times. So this passage at the end of Mark 13, we're actually, that's where we're starting, the end of Mark 13. Uh, Jesus uses this idea of sleeping as a negative thing. I want to read again what we had from our scripture reading this morning, starting in verse 32. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. And as I read that, the rain starts, and that probably will lull you to sleep. So that's kind of a a strange omen there. But the warning here at the end of Mark 13 is to keep awake. Don't be caught sleeping. When when the master returns, don't be asleep. And he uses this example of a gatekeeper, a doorkeeper. When Jessica and I lived in Rwanda, Africa, uh, we rented a house, And a guy came with the house. That's weird to say, but it's true. His name was Kazungu, a Rwandan man. He worked for this house, and he had for years. He had a wife, he had kids. So his life depended on income for being the groundskeeper and the gatekeeper at this house. So we inherited him, and we had to keep paying him. But he was just there every day, and other than opening the gate for us when we would come in and and chopping down the grass with his machete, I didn't really know what he was supposed to do, and he kept washing my shoes, and I was like, something's got to change here. Well, there was another missionary family that had warned us and told us, don't make yourself an easy target. You're an American living in Africa. People know that Americans have more money. It's just true. So don't make yourself an easy target. And this family had hired a security 
a team and a security officer to come and stay at their compound at night to watch over their compound and, and keep them safe from intruders. So I thought, that's what I'll do with Kazungu. Instead of having him in days, I will bring him uh, for our nighttime, and he could be our night watch. So that first night he was there, we worked through a translator. He, he agreed to come be our night security guard. I was feeling good. I was like, I can rest easy. I don't have to protect the house. Kazungu's doing it. And when I got ready to go to sleep at night, I went to check on him to see if he needed anything, and I opened the front door to the porch, and I hit a thud, and I looked down on the ground, and I had hit Kazungu. He was sound asleep on our front porch. And this went on for about a week. In fact, one night, he even brought a mattress and just went to sleep on the front porch. <laughs> so we're paying this guy to watch over our compound at night, and all he's doing is sleeping. We, I caught him sleeping. He's sleeping on the job. So he was of no use. And Jesus uses a similar example here, and he's saying a doorkeeper, a gatekeeper needs to be alert and keeping watch and not falling asleep. So Jesus gives this warning to stay awake, and there's some irony in this. Because in the very next chapter, in Mark chapter 14, right before Jesus is betrayed and put on trial and crucified, he's praying and he tells his disciples, stay awake. Keep watch, keep alert. And all they do is go to sleep. Three different times, Jesus goes back to check on them, and they're sleeping. So right after his warning to keep awake and stay awake, he catches his disciples sleeping. But keeping in mind the end of Mark chapter 13, my question is, why does Jesus challenge them to keep awake and to not sleep? What does that mean? What does that have to do with anything? And the only way to understand this warning at the end of Mark 13 is to go back and look through all of Mark chapter 13. And here's where I'm going to give you some highlights. And, and this is the most confusing chapter in the Bible, but we're going to go through it quickly. If you look at Mark chapter 13 and verse 1, as he came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings or what magnificent buildings. Okay, let me catch you up to speed. In Mark chapter 11, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the last week of his life with a triumphal entry. He goes into the temple, he leaves, and then he curses a fig tree. Then he goes back into the temple and he clears it out. He kicks out the money changers and he stops the temple practices for the day. And then the rest of Mark 11 and Mark 12 is a lot of arguments and questioning Jesus in the temple. Now they leave the temple, and the disciples are looking back at the temple, and they're saying, look at these beautiful, magnificent buildings. And it was. The temple was so incredibly important for Judaism, for it was central to their life. It was the center of religious life, the center of social life, the center, the center of their political life. It's where the high priest had his headquarters. It's where everybody would travel for the festivals and the feast each year. It was a magnificent building. Some historians say that the temple took up about 25% of the city. So basically, Jerusalem was like a small city built around a really large temple, which was unique. Because in the ancient world, each city had multiple temples for multiple gods, but not in Jerusalem. There was just one temple, and it was huge. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that when the sun would hit the temple, it would, there would just be this light shining off it, like the sun hitting the snow and glittering. Uh, some historians say that the temple was one of the most beautiful buildings in all of the world. It was being rebuilt by Herod. 
and it was huge, it was massive, it was beautiful. And so in verse 1, that's all that's happening is the disciples are saying, look at how beautiful this is. And then in verse 2, things get a little cryptic and a little weird. Jesus asked him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. This is a clear prophetic word. This is a prediction, a prophecy of the destruction of the temple. So they're sitting there looking at this massive building and Jesus is saying there's a time coming when not one stone will be left on another and that happens. About 40 years later, the Romans came in led by a guy named General Titus, surrounded the city, starved them out, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple. So Jesus' prophecy comes true. But then in verse 3 and 4, you got Peter, James, John, and Andrew in verse 3. And then in verse 4, they want to know more about this prediction. So they said, tell us, when will this be? And they have two questions. One is, when will it be? And the next question is, what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? So most of the rest of the chapter, Mark chapter 13, Jesus is answering those two questions. And he answers them in reverse order. When is this going to happen, this destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign? And this is where the chapter gets even weirder. It's hard to understand. Most people, when they read Mark 13 or Matthew 24 or Luke 21, interpret it as if it's the end of the world. We have left behind movies. We have books and movies and and, uh, all sorts of thoughts and theories about what the end of the world will be like. But I'll tell you to help you understand this chapter that most of what Jesus is talking about has to do with the destruction of the temple. Maybe that will help you with some biblical interpretation. Most of what he talks about in Mark 13 has to do with this prediction, this prophecy that the temple will be destroyed. However, if you read through Mark 13, you notice it doesn't seem to all be about the destruction of the temple. There seems to be a little bit of a blending or a foreshadowing of not just the destruction of the temple, but the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. In a weird, mysterious, strange way, Jesus seems to blend the two. Most of it seems to be about the destruction of the temple, but some of it's about eschatology. Can everybody just say eschatology? So I know you're not asleep. Okay, you didn't say it in unison, but that's okay. Eschatology is just the study of the last things, the end of times. There's a little bit of eschatology in here. And there's also a little bit of this parousia. I'm not going to ask you to say that because I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. But parousia is this Greek word that means second coming or return. So as we read Mark 13, yeah, most of it's about the destruction of the temple, but some of it is about the end of the world. Some of it is about the second coming of Christ. Let me hit you with some highlights. He starts with their second question. What will be the sign of these things coming? And and really he focuses on what's not the sign. So in verse 5 through 8 he says there's going to be false messiahs. There will be people claiming I am he. That's not the sign. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be earthquakes and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. Just because these things are happening does not mean the temple is about to be destroyed. These things are bound to happen. It doesn't mean an earthquake is going to hit Jerusalem and destroy the temple. That's not what Jesus means. In verse 9 through 11, he says, there will be persecutions, you will be put on trial. 
And they are. He'll appear before governors and kings, and Jesus says, don't worry, this Holy Spirit, this counselor, comforter, spirit of truth that he's giving them will give you the words to say. And there's going to be family betrayal. Family will betray each other, and historically we saw that, or we see that, we read about that in the destruction of the temple, and he says, the whole world will hate you because of me in verse 13. And that really happens when Nero becomes Roman emperor. So these are warnings, and Jesus is saying, when you hear of the earthquakes and the famines and the wars and all this stuff, and you're persecuted and you're put on trial, be patient. That doesn't mean that's the end. Those things are just bound to come. Those are the beginning of birth pains. And then in verse 14, this is where, if you like you know, this fantasy-type stuff, you look at something like this, and you're like, this sounds intriguing. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it ought not to be, and then Mark puts in parentheses, let the reader understand. What is this abomination that causes desolation? Uh, I'm going to go through these quickly also, but I want you to pay attention to the Old Testament references on the PowerPoint. And if you're really interested in some of this, you can write these down and go back and read. And this abomination that causes desolation, read Daniel 9, 11, 12, and you get an understanding of Daniel's words, he uses the same language, and then you could read Luke 21, and he gives us the idea of the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem, ready to take siege to it. And then in verse 14 through 23, we get this picture of Israel under siege. Let me read these words, starting at the end of verse 14. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one on the housetop must not go down or enter the house or to take anything away. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it, may, that it might not be in winter. For those days there will be suffering such as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now. No and never will be. So this, he's painting this picture of something awful that's coming. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he has cut short those days. And if anyone says to you at that time, look, here is a Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be alert, I have already told you everything. This is a picture of... General Titus and the Roman army coming in and ready to destroy. I've already mentioned the Jewish historian Josephus. And he tells us about what that time was like. They starved him out. He says that there were some people starving to death, that they were eating infants, and they were fighting each other over dirty scraps of food. It was an terrible time of suffering. So it seems like most of what Jesus is saying there is in reference to to A.D. 70 and the coming of this destruction of the temple. Not one stone will be left on another. And then in verse 24 and 25, he switches to this apocalyptic type of language. And he says, in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened. As I look outside back there and how dark it is from the storm, it's kind of eerie reading this. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers in heaven and the heavens will be shaken. This is referring to what Isaiah mentions in Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 34, and I encourage you to read those as well. So what does he mean by that? And then all of a sudden, in verse 26 and 27, 
When they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Okay, now he seems like he's blending and switching and foreshadowing and going from destruction of the temple to this parousia, to the end of the world, the second coming. When you see the Son of Man, this is in reference to Daniel chapter 7. When you see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, you could read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5, and, and, and Paul gives us a fuller glimpse of maybe what Jesus is referring to here. So this is where the blending takes place. Is he talking about the destruction of the temple, or is he talking about the second coming? Well, it seems like he's now talking about the second coming, but then he got, uses this example of the fig tree and how all these things will take place and this generation will not pass away. And so then it's just kind of like, wait a minute, what's he talking about here? Been studying this for weeks, been reading commentators. We had a, a staff meeting and did a Bible study on this. I've asked a lot of people, what do you think Mark 13 means? And it's hard to fully understand. And maybe Jesus does that on purpose. There's a lot of what we read in the Bible that's not easy to understand, and maybe that's on purpose. But the key is not so much what will be the signs. The key is their first question, which is when will these things happen? When is it going to happen? And, and we know that that day will come, but we don't know when, and we know that lots of people have tried to predict when that day will come. But Jesus says, going back to the beginning passage where we started in verse 32 through the end of Mark 13, no one knows. Not the sun, not the angels, no one knows when that day will be. And now we're really looking at that second coming. We believe that Jesus will come back. We just don't know when. And Jesus says, leave that into God's hands. Stop trying to predict. Stop trying to uh, live in these prophetic timetables, but just trust that that will happen someday. So he says, stay awake, keep alert. John Ortberg, in a book, uh, wrote a story about a friend of his who's on an international flight. Long flight, going overseas. This guy hated flying, and he was always jealous of those people that can sleep on the plane. So if you're one of those, I'm jealous of you too, because I struggle with that. So this guy had a friend who gave him some prescription sleeping pills, which you're not supposed to do, right? Don't, don't, yeah, don't give somebody else your prescription. So just clear that up. I'm not advocating this, but this guy took a pill, and he thought, now I'm going to sleep. And a few minutes went by, and he still wasn't asleep, so he took a second pill, and he thought, these things don't work. And a few minute, more minutes went by, and he took a third pill, and this time he took it with a stronger drink, and he thought, maybe this will work. And that's the last thing he remembers, and all of a sudden he woke up, he was sitting in a wheelchair by himself in the terminal. Which, I don't know what kind of foreign airport this is that they didn't take him to a hospital, but apparently, when they landed, he was the last one on the plane, and they couldn't wake him up. So the flight attendants put him in a wheelchair, wheeled him out to the terminal, and just left him there. And he has no idea how many hours went by, but he was out cold, sound asleep. And this warning that Jesus gives is, not be caught sleeping. And I don't think, like I've already mentioned, physical sleep is important. We need that. So I don't think that Jesus is referring to staying up all night. We need physical sleep. He's referring to our spiritual condition. And too many of us are like that. We're sleeping. 
We're asleep to what God is doing. So I think there's a few layers to this warning that I just want to share with you briefly. Keep awake. So the most basic understanding of the end of Mark 13 is don't sleep on Jesus. And I don't mean that. I realize that sentence is worded kind of funny. I don't mean like don't fall asleep on Jesus' shoulder. I mean don't sleep on Jesus because he's told us he's coming back. But we don't know when. That could be today. That could be next week, next year, 10 years from now, or not even in this lifetime. But we live within this promise that he will return. So there is a sense of urgency in this. If you have never become a follower of Jesus, you've never been baptized into Christ, well then maybe this is something, this is a warning that maybe you really take into deep consideration in your life. Living within the reality of this sense of urgency that there will be a day coming when Jesus returns. And at that point, is it too late? Yes. So Jesus is saying, stay awake. Don't be asleep. Don't sleep on Jesus. But then another layer of this is, I think he's also meaning, if you're keeping in line with the rest of his teachings, don't sleep on the reality of God all around you right now. We live in between times. We live in the already but the not yet. Already because Jesus has already come to this earth through the incarnation. He had his life, his ministry, what we're really leading to here in the end of Mark, his, his cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. Right, so he's already come, he's ushered in the kingdom of God, he preached about the gospel, the good news, the euangelion, and, and he's unleashed that into the world, right? And so... His spirit is alive and active all over the world, including here at Pine Tree and in Longview, while we anticipate his second coming. But he's alive and active now. And so there's this layer, this sense of don't sleep on God now. Are you asleep spiritually to what God is doing all around us? If you can think back to early on in Mark, Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells the parable of the soils. And there's a sower sowing seeds, and that seed is the word of God. And there's one soil that grows up, but it doesn't produce fruit because it's choked out by the thorns. You remember this? And when he goes on to explain it, he said the thorns represent the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and things like that. If we're sleeping to the reality of God all around us right now, we're like those thorns being choked out by the thorns. And I will admit, even though I'm a preacher and I spend a lot of my time studying God's Word, there's plenty of times where I've struggled with being choked out by the thorns, by the worries of this life, by the deceitfulness of wealth. So there's this warning of wake up, not just being ready for the second coming, but wake up to The good news being preached all around us and lived out. Wake up to the reality of the kingdom of God. And then this third layer is don't sleep on yourself. Now here's what I mean by that. Because that maybe sounds a little bit selfish. Like what do you mean don't sleep on yourself? Uh, Over the last few years I've taken, and some of y'all have heard me talk about this. And our staff has heard me talk about this. But uh, there's an ancient spiritual personality typing Uh, called the Enneagram. So there's nine main personality types, they they claim, that almost all humans will probably 
adapt to one of these main one of these nine personality types. I've taken this, it feels spot on, I'm a nine on the Enneagram, which means I'm a peacemaker, which comes with some gifts, but it also comes with some struggles, as all types do. And one of the books that I was reading on the Enneagram to help me understand my own type says that nines, because you're concerned and focused on other people and what their interests and hobbies are, nines have a tendency of falling asleep to their own lives falling asleep to themselves, and I don't think it's just nines that struggle with that. I think all humans struggle with that. Are you, have you fallen asleep to the passions and the desires that God has given you? I like to refer to this as the fire in your belly. If you have caught on to this good news in this kingdom of God, there should be some fire in your belly, some passion, some desire to serve, and a spiritual gift that God has given you to serve with. Are you you awake to that? Or have you fallen asleep to Christ within you? One of our focus areas for this year. So are you awake to this? Are you awake to how God is working through you and your spiritual gifts? Are you awake to how God is working in this community and all over the world? And are you awake and are you alert and are you ready for Christ to return? So we need to wake up, Jesus says. There's a warning for his disciples, and they fall asleep in the next chapter. We need to wake up and be ready. Whatever that may mean to you today, to wake up and be ready. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14, he says, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. How do you need to wake up? I'm sure in in spiritual condition, the spiritual sense, plenty of us could admit we do need to wake up. So if that's where you're at, whatever that may be in your life, we have elders at this church who care about you and love you. One will be up front with me. A few will be around the room. If you need to grab one of those shepherds and talk with them and pray with them, take this opportunity to do that. If you're not prepared for Jesus to come back and you want to talk to somebody about what that looks like, come talk to us. We're going to stand, we're going to sing another song, and the invitation is yours. Let's stand and sing. To the river 